Welcome to season two of the Knowledge from the Couch podcast. It's still irreverent. It's still weird. It's still the show that you love to tolerate. Thanks for listening. Hey guys, welcome to the Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode number 41. This week we are going in and examining part two of the American Revolution. This week we're going to cover basically the war itself in uh, greater detail. Last week, uh, as you remember, if you've listened to that episode, and if you haven't, this is a weird place to uh, jump in, but some people are more into the uh, the war stories and things like that, so that's totally fine. Um, but the 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 episode previous to this episode, we talked about the precursor and the run up to the Revolutionary War. We covered uh, the French and Indian War and how fighting in that war against the French, basically the the British used a lot of um, of colonial resources to fight that war. And then after that war was done, there was a bunch of debt to the crown, and the crown figured, hey, maybe we should just use the colonies to help pay back that debt. How about we just start taxing the shit out of them because they have a bunch of resources and stuff? And the colonists were not really hugely into that. Uh, Taxing somebody without giving them any sort of representation in parliament was in the eyes of the colonists a a terrible intolerable awful act and through probably 10 years or so worth of these different tax acts and uh some some anger and some violence and some this and that and the other thing eventually a bunch of uh, american patriots decided to formally split from the uh united kingdom of great britain um, there were still loyalists, obviously, on the grounds of the American colonies, people who still consider themselves quite, quite British. Uh, those people were basically banned from serving in any sort of public office or doing anything at all while the Patriots basically started to take uh, uh, control of the what would become the the new United States of America. But at the time, you still are a bunch of colonies. So the colonies uh, all send a bunch of representatives, representatives excuse me, together to figure out what they want to do in these Continental Congresses. They eventually form the Declaration of Independence and the Articles of Confederation to help run their, their you know, so-called government at the time. And then during this time, in 1775, war has actually begun uh, fighting-wise, but the real battles don't really begin until a little bit after that, and they last until about 1783 or so. So that's what we're going to talk about this week. We're going to talk about the actual war and the fighting itself, some of the bigger, more important battles, how things have gone here, there, and everywhere, and we should end around the time that uh, the American Revolution ends. So without further ado, guys, let's just get into that particular subject area. This is episode 41, The American Revolution, part two, War Begins. Guys, Knowledge from the Couch podcast, episode 41. Stick with me. 
the actual uh, beginning of armed hostility we actually covered in the previous episode towards the very end uh, in the battles of Lexington and Concord, which while the revolutionary uh, soldiers, the American patriots, didn't really win all that much, they also didn't lose all that badly. In fact, um, there was great loss in British officer lives, um, you know, uh, in proportion to what they put out for their fighting, which really got the uh, the the British forces reeling a little bit, finding out that they were not going to have as easy of a time uh, quelling this rebellion as they probably thought originally. They probably thought, hey, these are our colonies. These are British people. Of course, we're going to have a ton of support here. We're just going to stamp out this little, you know, liberty thing or whatever it's called, and we'll just, you know, make them a, 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 you know, colonies or a dominion or whatever it's going to be when this is all said and done. They didn't realize that a lot of people uh, felt the same way as a lot of these patriots did and effectively were stamping out uh, loyalist support basically everywhere, which was going to make the British response very, very difficult. Now, of course, the British Army was still much, much better prepared and much more um, well-trained when it came to the art of war. But as you'll see as this episode uh, progresses, the American military catches up very quickly and is able to meet the British, uh, you know, rifle to rifle, so to speak, um, in their way of effectively uh, carrying out war as it would be as well. But before we get into the meat and potatoes, we have to actually go back a little bit around that time. Um, one of the things I didn't mention in the last episode, because it didn't really make sense to put it there. So after the fighting in uh, Lexington and Concord, there was actually a very short-lived uh, American invasion of Canada, sort of. So basically... As the this fighting is going on, this fighting is going on in the Northeast, you know, United States, you know, in the in the New York, Massachusetts type of area, so fairly far north. Americans were worried that um, in Quebec there was going to be a, a, an outpouring of loyalist and British support, since Canada, this uh, you know area, was you know fairly uh, British to begin with, although Quebec itself was reasonably French. It was with this, this very weird situation where the United States at this point, the Americans figured, hey, we don't want the British coming from this direction, you know, getting a bunch of, of you know, French people on their side and Indians on their side, whatever it's going to be. So we need to, to preemptively move up into Quebec and, you know, do a do a little do a little invasion, kind of take that super duper quick and make it happen. Uh, in April of 1775, Congress feared that an Anglo-Indian attack from Canada would happen, so they authorized an invasion of Quebec. Quebec, having a largely Francophone population, had only been under British rule for about 12 years, so the Americans expected, hey, at least the people here maybe will be sympathetic to our cause and might not mind being liberated from British rule. Um so the Americans attacked Quebec City on December 31st of 1775, so going into 1776, but they were routed, soundly defeated, very badly. After a loose siege, the Americans then withdrew on May 6th of 1776 that year. So the, the Declaration of Independence hasn't even been formally uh, drafted and signed yet, but obviously, like I said, the, the hostilities had already began. Um, 
So they basically started withdrawing on May 6th of that year. A failed counterattack on June the 8th then permanently ended any American operations in Quebec. Um, the British couldn't conduct an aggressive pursuit because there was American ships nearby on some of the lakes and rivers. So they just said, ah, whatever, get out of here, America, just go away. You don't get to have this at the very least. You also be interested to know that one of the higher ups uh, commanding the American forces attacking Quebec City at this time was the one and only Benedict Arnold. We will get to Mr. Benedict Arnold here later on. But of course, if you are anyone who has ever existed in America at any time, you'll know that Benedict Arnold is basically shorthand and synonymous with treason and being a traitor. So uh, at this point, Interestingly enough, Benedict Arnold was one of the most outspoken patriots of the time, a very well thought of uh, American uh, soldier and patriot. Uh, it just, you know, took a took a toll on him and he ended up defecting a little bit later on in the war back to, um, you know, loyalists to the crown and, and was offering information and what have you. We'll get to Benedict Arnold uh, a little bit later on. But basically, the failed uh, American invasion of Canada was a total and utter waste of resources. And I just f figured I should bring that up because obviously the Americans didn't really know what the fuck they were doing most of the time. So they were just kind of doing what they were doing, thinking, you know, in, in whatever way you would think that they would be thinking strategically. Um, different little skirmishes broke out in 1776 around the different parts of the colonies. A lot of loyalist uh uh, activity was being put down by colonists. Uh, there was fighting breaking out in South Carolina between loyalist and patriot militias, and the loyalists were subsequently driven out of that colony. Loyalists were then recruited in North Carolina to reassert colonial rule, but then they were stamped out as well. Um, a troop of British regulars set out to reconquer South Carolina and launched an attack on Charleston, but of course it failed and left the South in patriot control until 1780 later on. And like I said, of course, all of this is happening in 1776 and 1775 before that, before the uh, the actual Declaration of Independence has been signed. So we're still kind of, we're in war, but we're not 100% in war yet. At this point, it's mostly just punching, skirmishing, sort of measuring each other up. And like I mentioned in the last episode, the Continental Congress came together and made an olive branch, you know, hey, we don't want to keep fighting King George. Like, this is our, you know, olive branch saying, hey, we want to be independent. Can you just give this to us? And we don't want to fight anymore. Just let us have this. King George, of course, says, fuck you. You guys are all rebels and you're all rebel scum. And I'm going to stamp you out because of that. Well, of course, the colonies become emboldened by the king being, you know, so anti-revolution that they decide, fuck it, we're going to fight now. It's time to fight. And of course, this, you know, this fervor in the colonies was a huge reason why basically all 13 of the colonies were able to shake off colonial, you know, British control so easily. We mentioned also in the last episode that the standing army in England was very small, and that's why they had a bunch of standing uh, uh, military troops in the colonies itself, because it was a political faux pas to have so many standing troops in England itself, and that was a huge, the, the big reason 
that that was a thing was because England had learned their lesson in the past with with power and 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 you know mad kings and queens that would you know want to consolidate their power and conquer this that and the other thing um so having troops there basically gave the king or queen at the time a very strong hand to basically force everything so after uh everything had been done with the the, you know the the killing of the king and the commonwealth of england before the monarchy uh regained control there was this idea that the king should not be as powerful as maybe they used to be and and maybe parliament should act and make more of the rules of government than um than before so there was a very small standing army of professionals in england which allowed the the colonies basically to be like hey this is our shit now you're so far away you're over there across this giant ocean we're over here so any response you send, even if you do send one, is going to be crappy anyway. So bye-bye, birdie. We have the colonies. They're ours now. Uh, this also leads the English to uh, secure treaties with German states um, for Hessian troops. Uh, up to 32,000 of them were conscripted basically as mercenaries to the British army and then sent across the, the ocean to fight in this new revolutionary war. And we'll also get to that fairly soon as well in one of the most famous instances of those Hessian troops being, you know, defeated by the American army. The colonies were also spurred at this point by Thomas Paine's pamphlet called Common Sense, which is a very uh, well-written, verbose support of American colonies being independent of their colonial masters, which, of course, led to the signing of the Declaration of Independence, which they sent to King George, who promptly basically probably pissed on it. I mean, who knows? But basically it was just saying, hey, these are our grievances. We need to be free. This is what we're going to do. We don't care what you say. We officially declared that we don't want to be a part of your state anymore. And then the fighting uh, starts in earnest at this point. The British then basically launch uh, their counteroffensive, which would be a lot of a of fighting in the the northern colonies, New York and New Jersey in particular. Now, this war is a 13-colony-wide war from, you know, as far north as, quote-unquote, Massachusetts, which is uh, modern-day Maine, and as far south, obviously, as, as Georgia in the colonies. But the for this particular portion, as we as we look at the, the British counteroffensive, the British finally trying to maybe put their correct foot forward when it comes to this fight with these American patriots. We're talking now about the the New York and the New Jersey side of the campaign. Uh, One of the British commanders, William Howe, is at this point determined to, you know, take that fight back at the Americans. He sets sail in June of 1776 and begins landing his troops on Staten Island, which is near the entrance uh, to New York Harbor on the 2nd of July that year. Um, George Washington had really, really poor military intelligence, so he split his army uh, into two different positions, one on Manhattan Island and then one across the East River on Long Island, um, and just it, it didn't go all that well for him. On August 27th, about a month and a half later, uh, William Howe then outflanks George Washington and forces him back into Brooklyn Heights and routes his army there, but he decides for some reason 
that he's okay with just routing his army and pushing him back into the Brooklyn Heights area, whereas a lot of the people underneath him were very much into the idea of continuing to beat the shit out of the Americans and pushing them farther and farther in. But for some reason, Howe just decided, ah, oh, this is good enough and didn't push any farther. Washington then withdraws into Manhattan without any real losses at that point. Following that withdrawal, the Staten Island Peace Conference fails to negotiate any kind of peace with the British because the British delegates that had come in didn't actually possess the authority to recognize you know, independence or any of that kind of stuff, even though there were still these little attempts here and there to try to garner peace because everybody's just like, oh, I don't know if I want to fight. Oh, we're going to fight, I guess. William Howe then seizes control completely of New York City on September the 15th and unsuccessfully engages the Americans the next day. He then attempts to encircle Washington after he had flanked him about a month and a half or so earlier. He attempts to try to circle him up and, and take him out. But fortunately, the Americans were able to retreat successfully and get out of that particular trap. And then on October 28th, the British fought uh, in the Battle of the White Plains, which is basically a really indecisive battle against George Washington and his forces, where Howe declined to attack Washington's army, instead concentrating his efforts on a hill that had really no strategic value. So we're seeing here over and over again, the British, for some reason, are throwing out just mostly incompetent type generals. I mean, there's this idea of how wars are supposed to be fought, and the British had been basically at war for the last, like, 400 straight years um, in various areas. When you talk about the British Empire, you know, we're always talking about how the sun never sets on the British Empire. And that phrase, that missive, comes from the fact that the, the, the British had been just going all around the world forever, just conquering this, controlling this, doing this. Whatever it is, not only, you know, out in, in, in very faraway lands, but also just, you know, fighting their enemies, their supposed enemies at home. Their, uh, their biggest foe, obviously, being the French, who they fought over and over and over and over and over again. And everyone has this idea of, like, what combat, you know, what military action is supposed to look like at this point in time. And the Americans are, for some reason, they're under-equipped, they're undermanned, they're commanded by a, a smart commander-in-chief, that being George Washington, but even with all the strategy and everything going on, they're, they're not a great fighting force by any means, but they're still able to hang on pretty effectively against this, what should be the greatest army, the greatest force on Earth. They're, they're, they're hanging on really, really well, and it's going poorly for the British. I I think they kind of came into this war, and they didn't, you know, they didn't get what they expected to get out of it. But anyhow, getting back to the fighting, uh, like we were saying, George Washington was able to take his retreat away from this encircling from Howe, but it left some people behind. In particular, uh, the British captured uh, an American fortification, Fort Washington. On November the 16th, uh, taking 3,000 prisoners in the process, which amounted to basically one of the most disastrous defeats for the Americans in the entire war. Uh, another 
British uh, military official Sir Henry Clinton then captures Newport, Rhode Island, which is a little bit nearby, in an operation which he opposed, feeling that the 6,000 troops that he could have been using, better employing in a pursuit of George Washington, were in fact redirected to Newport, Rhode Island to take, you know, some insignificant, what he found an insignificant port there. So this continuing to see the the disorganization in the British forces or rather the the lack of a cohesive idea on what needs to be done, at least between the different military commanders. General uh, Charles Cornwallis, another very famous uh, uh, British military commander, was also in attempting to pursue George Washington, but uh, Mr. Howe decided to... Uh, you know, let Washington go and and ordered uh, Cornwallis to halt his advance. And of course, Washington gets away with most of his army. That army, though, really wasn't that many men left. Despite basically dumbing their way past the British and, and, and doing some fighting here, doing some fighting there, you know, having some like, I guess, moral victories and stuff maybe a year or so earlier at Lexington and Concord, um, the Americans saw just a terrible, embarrassing defeat in Quebec City with that random, you know, so-called invasion of Canada. And for the last year or so, as the British are counterattacking, despite their their bumbling attitude, they are still making enough headway against the Americans that the American cause seems a little bit less uh, uh, certain at this point. At this part of the war, the army had dwindled to fewer than 5,000 men and they knew that there would be even less of those men um, at the end of the year when some of these uh, uh, temporary enlistments that, that the, the Continental Army were using were going to expire at the end of the year. Popular support was wavering, morale was ebbing away, and Congress had abandoned Philadelphia at this point. Loyalist activity was surging in the wake of some of these American defeats, especially in New York. I mean, if you have British troops everywhere in this New York area where they're doing all the fighting and the Americans are retreating all the time, if you're just a regular old Joe living around there, you're going to start to think, oh, shit, this is turning the wrong direction for the Americans. Maybe I should be a little more, you know, God save the king at this point. Despite the British being kind of wonky when it was coming to this war, things were looking really good, like like we are saying. Festivities were taking place in London, England. Public support for the war was reaching a, a fevered pitch. They were reaching a peak. And King George awarded the Order of the Bath to William Howe, despite William Howe not basically totally stamping out Washington's army, which would come back to bite him. But the successes that the British were having in the Americas led to the predictions, of course, the very hubristic pr predictions on the British side, that they could win the war within the year. It didn't help, obviously, that despite Washington being a fairly good military commander, a very uh, capable man in that role, in his own right, that his troops were inexperienced. They were, like I said, you have enlistments, you have these guys just basically picking up arms from farms and stuff, and Washington was just, he had, you know, George Washington had been an, an officer in the British military years ago during the French and Indian War. So he also knew, you know, this is how you're supposed to fight and what you're supposed to do. Yet he was dealing with soldiers that were not nearly as experienced and, and intelligent when it came to ways of war like he was. 
So when they would do their fighting, despite whatever effort he had put into it, there was always going to be some sort of, of, you know, inexperience that was going to rear its ugly head. Men, you know, fleeing during battle, weird retreats, this, that, and the other thing. In the meantime, all this is happening. The British then enter their winter quarters, which is a thing you do, you know, in, in places that have more inhospitable winters. And you basically curl up somewhere, you know, set up camp and hang out and, and regain your strength before the fighting then continues when the weather starts to warm up again. And this, this is where we get to the best and most badass portion of the American Revolutionary War. This is the 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 one of the more famous, I guess you could say, like paintings moments of the Revolutionary War. And this is when George Washington decides, I've had fucking enough of this bullshit. We are going to do something real ballsy and we are going to try to make this happen. So on Christmas Day of 1776, George Washington and his crew stealthily cross in the dead of night the Delaware River, to basically go after one of those aforementioned Hessian garrisons at Trenton, New Jersey. Now, this Hessian garrison had been brought over, like we said, by the British, paying them a whole bunch of money saying, hey, you know, we're fighting these dumbass American patriots. We want your help. Here's a bunch of money. Come on over. It's all good. And they're like, yeah, yeah, that's cool. Give us some money. We'll come and go fight those Americans. We don't care. Whatever. So on Christmas Day, uh, George Washington then crosses the Delaware River, the icy, inhospitable, difficult to cross Delaware River, and and basically attacks this Hessian garrison in Trenton, New Jersey. They had no idea he was coming. It was a secret operation, and basically he he beats them at that point without even having to really try. He takes a whole bunch of prisoners, nine hundred Hessian prisoners, uh, all together, and and. You know, it was it was a huge victory, not only militarily, but morally that the Americans were flagging. They were they were doing so poorly. And all of a sudden they come up with this just just crazy idea to stealth attack somebody on Christmas Day and they pop over and it works gloriously and it raises the army's morale and gives a new hope for the American cause for independence. General Cornwallis is all pissed off about this and intends to retake Trenton, New Jersey, but his efforts are rebuked later on January the 2nd of 1777, where George Washington and his forces somehow outmaneuver General Cornwallis at night and defeated his rear guard the following day. These victories would prove instrumental in convincing the French and the Spanish, the most important part of this war at this point, that the Americans were worthwhile allies, that they were actually a nation, a sovereign type of nation worthy to be something and would go and help these Americans because, of course, the French and the Spanish fucking hate the British. They all hate each other, basically. But when you think of, like, European politics, it's like Britain versus the rest of Europe. And even though the rest of Europe kind of hates each other, they all kind of hate the British, so the French and the Spanish see that the Americans, despite being kind of a ragtag group of of guys, are still able to do what they did against the British, against superior forces, against uh, superior odds, and they decide, hey, let's pop in and help these Americans, which would end up being, you know, the turning point of this war. And the best way 
that you can initially see this support from foreign powers to the American cause is a little bit later in 1777 into 1778. Now, like we are talking about, Washington crosses the Delaware River in late 1776 and has this decisive victory that shows everybody, hey, the Americans aren't fucking around. But unfortunately, for most of 1777, the fighting with the British is still not going all that well. And eventually, Philadelphia, like we said, had already been abandoned by the Americans and the those Americans who were in Philly for the Continental Congress then moved that Continental Congress to York, Pennsylvania, and the British then basically walked into Philadelphia unopposed and and took that city in the middle of 1777. And George Washington, basically after a, another tough, ridiculous year of fighting, eventually makes winter quarters in 1777 at the now very famous Valley Forge. Now, Valley Forge is is really a, a very apt name for what happens with the American army at this point. They basically become forged, like in the fires of drill and the toughness of the elements, to truly become this professional, well-trained fighting force and that is because of George Washington for one and for two and three two other men both from different nations that came over to aid the Americans because they agreed with the the cause of American patriotism at this point one being the uh, Marquis de Lafayette from France and the other being Baron Baron von Steuben from uh, Prussia at the time, also another German-type thing. Now, obviously, at this point in the world, there isn't a, uh, a Germany as we know it today. Um, yeah, there are a lot of different uh, Germanic styles of peoples there, but Prussia being sort of a, an Eastern, sort of basically what Germany and into Poland and all these other areas uh, is today, um, this Prussian man, Baron von Steuben in particular, and the Marquis de Lafayette does a lot to help as well, but Baron von Steuben is really the man who helped turn this crappy, untrained American army into an actual, real fighting force. Now, um, von Steuben was a military commander in the Prussian military, and he decided, hey, I'm going to pop over to the Americas, and I'm going to see what I can do to volunteer my services to train these American men who are fighting against these asshole, again, these asshole British people that I totally fucking hate. When he arrived at Valley Forge, one of the American soldiers' first impression of him was, quote, of the ancient fabled god of war. He seemed to me a perfect personification of Mars, Mars being the Roman god of war. The trappings of his horse, the enormous holsters of his pistols, his large size, and his strikingly martial aspect all seemed to favor the idea. He turned the volunteers into a good army, unquote. Baron von Steuben wrote a book called Regulations for the Order and Discipline of the Troops of the United States. He wrote this book as he was training these troops in um, Prussian military drill. Now, at this point, in the world, the Prussian military was considered one of the, the best, one of the finest military forces on earth. Easily as good as anything the British and the French 
and anyone you can think of could could muster and put onto the field of battle. Von Steuben was a military and drill genius. So he goes and walks in to Valley Forge where George Washington immediately appoints him as Inspector General, which is just a, a fancy way of saying, hey, this guy can inspect the troops and, and basically do whatever he wants to to make sure that we're doing what we need to do to do this correctly. And Baron von Steuben went to work immediately. He established standards of sanitation and camp layouts that would be standard for at least a century and a half after he implemented them. Previously, there had been no set arrangement of tents or huts in these camps. Most men would relieve themselves wherever they wanted to, and when an animal died, it was stripped of its meat and the rest was left to rot where it lay. Von Steuben laid out a plan to have rows for command, and then rows for officers, and then rows for enlisted men. Kitchens and latrines were placed on opposite sides of the camp, you know, as far away from each other as you could get, with latrines on the downhill side of the camp. Von Steuben then picked 120 men from various regiments in the Valley Forge uh, winter quarters to form his honor guard, uh, which would he he would then train in in his military drill and everything, and then those men would go and train their men on military drill. That way, von Steuben didn't have to you know muster every single person every single day and go through the same drills. Even though that was probably something that you would do every once in the blue moon, he would usually just pick the honor guard, probably the guys he felt were the smartest and the best uh, and most capable of military service at this point. And he would teach them this 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 Prussian military drilling, and then they would would teach it back to their men. And interestingly enough, uh, von Steuben could only speak and write a small amount of English, being a a German man. So he would write the drills in the original German from you know from his perspective, and then one of his secretaries would then translate the drills from German into French. And then another secretary would translate um, those French drills to English for George Washington. And they did this every single night so that George Washington could then command his troops in the morning on on these drills. Uh, the Baron's willingness to work with the men, as well as his use of profanity, maybe if he was alive these days, I'd have him on this podcast, made him super popular among his soldiers. He introduced a system of progressive training that these men weren't using at the time, beginning with the school of the soldier with and without arms, by the way, because you could be a good soldier even without your rifle, and going through the school of the regiment. This would correct a previous policy of simply assigning people to regiments just arbitrarily and randomly. Uh, Each company commander then was made responsible for training new men but actual instruction was done by sergeants selected by von Steuben specifically for their their aptitude towards his training. He also helped the um, these U.S. soldiers uh, become better at using their bayonets, specifically in the bayonet charges that are uh, became so famous later in the war. Um, in the earlier parts of the war, these troops basically used them as cooking skewers or tools rather than an actual fighting implement. And he turned that entire thing around, and very quickly in the next year, this was proven very effective because, of course, everything the United States was doing was super-duper ragtag, and von Steuben was just like, Jesus Christ, okay, 
uh, we got to strip this down to the very very basics and just build them up again and and make them a real army and it paid out in dividends in addition the Marquis de Lafayette uh, had come to America a little bit earlier in 1777 and was fighting with the American forces and he too entered Valley Forge in the winter of uh, 1777 into the spring of 1778 and endured and shared the same hardship that those troops were going through as he too went through the military drills and the inspections of these troops with Baron von Steuben and General Washington at the same time. Despite all of this stuff happening in the positive, Valley Forge was really difficult for the entire Continental Army. Poor conditions and supply problems resulted in the death of probably 2,500 of the troops that were staying there. The winter was cold. They didn't have enough food. They were being run ragged by Von Steuben, and this just sort of ended up being a thing where guys would die. Now, the entire time this was happening, Valley Forge is like, 20 miles away from Philadelphia. And William Howe, the the British commander that we spoke of earlier, was encamped in Philadelphia, and he could have literally just marched up to Valley Forge 20 miles away and just taken out the American army and honestly probably would have ended the war in favor of the British had he done that. Now, did he do that? Of course he didn't. Of course he didn't, because Howe, for some reason, would only fight at weirdly arbitrarily picked, you know, times where it, it just didn't seem like the best strategy. Like how could have won so many more battles, including this one, had he taken his shot and instead he decided not to do so. And the Americans were allowed to stay the entire winter in Valley Forge, become a better army through the instruction of Baron von Steuben and come out of it a way, way better army, more prepared, better rested, ready to fight again. This was also bolstered by France formally recognizing the United States' sovereignty and entering the war on the side of the United States in 1778. And this would lead to a stalemate in the northern theater of the campaign um, during the Revolutionary War. The, the the tides are turning in favor of the Americans. And at this point, I think I'm going to cut it off for this week. We still have plenty to talk about for the rest of the war. Uh, guys, thanks for listening to this episode. We covered the, the, the middle part of the conflict, uh, including George Washington's, you know, uh, daring crossing of the Delaware River and Baron von Steuben's training of the army at Valley Forge to make them a new, reinvigorated, well-trained military force. Uh, next week, we will talk about the rest of the campaign in the North and the campaign in the South, and eventually the the ending of this war and the repercussions thereof. Guys, thanks so much for listening to this this you know extended look at the American Revolution. It's been one of the more interesting takes I've had on my podcast. It's been very interesting to just go over something in a longer term pattern rather than um, looking at something just on a week to week basis and just doing that whole thing. So I hope you're enjoying it so far uh, and I hope you will stick around and, and pop in next week when we finish this entire thing off and we go 
into our August plan. Guys, you can catch this podcast anywhere podcasts can be found. And by the way, the podcast is now on Spotify. So if you are a Spotify listener and you do all your music and your playlists on Spotify, Spotify just started doing podcasts on their service. So you can search Knowledge from the Couch podcast on Spotify and you can find it there if you would like to. You can find me on Twitter at Kyle Steinhauser. You can follow the um podcast twitter account at the couch pod you can find us on facebook search knowledge from the couch podcast and hang out there guys until next week be nice to each other and live long and prosper 